Good morning. And before I forget, like I did last week, I didn't forget, well, I did forget, I didn't say anything, but the attendance pads made it around without me saying anything, but this time I'll make sure it gets around. There should be one in the chair on the, my right, your left, over here too. If you can keep it on your side, we don't need to cross over, we have two different ones, just, just let it go all the way back, that'd be helpful. Um, also, next week, what's next week? Conference. Conference. Are we going to be in here? No. Thank you. You got it. Don't need, no more needs to be said. Um, the website is back up and running. There is still a handful. I think ours is fully running. Um, uh, but if there is some other, like partners, as someone pointed out, partners, there's some verses that are not quite coming up, right, and are not coming up at all. So we're still in the process of rebuilding the website. It, we, um, I wouldn't say we're hacked, but we were um, compromised, and they deleted all of everything that we had on the server. So we have it all as a backup somewhere else, so we're having to rebuild it all, though, and bring it all back. So um, that's why there was is down for this week a little bit. But again, all the messages. Has it been okay to find stuff on there? And you understand, I changed the way the, um, the player works, so we didn't have standalone videos. Now it's in a player like you're used to seeing in a, on our normal website with the media. That includes all the handouts, that includes the notes, that includes the audio as well. So it's all down below. When you find the message, you can find all those things inside each message. Um, have any problems with that? You can see me afterwards. I can show what that looks like. Um, there is um, a meeting tonight, and don't feel left out, but those are the ones that ha are actually officially going through the ACBC certification, and the ones that were, there's others that are invited that have been in the previous tranches, and they're not finished yet, so we're trying to get everyone through and lined up and make sure they're all marching in the same direction. So that's what's tonight, so don't feel left out, but that's what that's for. And those that are on the wish list, or the wait list, um, are invited too, because there there's, could be some opportunities to join in um, as we go along. Um, I really don't have any other announcements, so Daniel will have some other Q&A for us, but um, let me pray, and then I'll get Daniel up here. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word and to know what you have told us and about yourself and what we can know about our own hearts. And Lord, even as we examine and we splay our hearts to understand why we do what we do, we that we are first to be humble, to know that the change that needs to happen in our own hearts has to happen first before we can help others in theirs. Lord, I pray for Daniel as he leads this morning and he's been sick and pray that you give him the strength in this process. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Steve. Uh, no. Do you have that slide too, Steve, that walks through the... Well, we normally start with a verse, but I wanted to walk through with you guys if it would be helpful, kind of the purpose of the class big picture-wise, and then also to kind of how the training fits in. I know there's lots of details that can, I think, be, be easily misunderstood. So just want to walk through that real quick. So this, this class, okay, ultimately is, is really for everybody, okay? All of us are counselors. And so we want to equip, okay, like Ephesians 4 calls pastors, teachers to do, equip the whole body, okay, the church. And so all, all of you guys, everybody that's here, Okay? Even our own selves, all these truths are important as we speak the truth in love okay, to one another, okay? even to our own hearts as well too. And so some people, again, are in this class because they want to grow personally. 
that's awesome, this class is for you. Maybe you've grown spiritually, maybe you're working uh, with the 128ers or you're a, a partner's leader and you're doing discipleship and so you want to sharpen your own heart but you also really want to sharpen your ministry skills in doing that. Maybe you're a parent, okay, there's lots of different ministries out there. Uh, or uh, very other side of the spectrum is counseling. Let's say you really want to be a counselor. Okay, you want to be involved formally in meeting with people, going through marital, marital difficulties or whatever okay, the case may be. This class really is for anybody, okay, any one of those three I mentioned, or anywhere in between, okay, ultimately. Uh, there is, though, for those who are interested in certification who really want to be formal counselors, that is, that someone would come in, I would see the need, okay, to have someone meet with them, and I'd connect them with you, okay, potentially. All right, there are, there's a great need, okay, for that in our church. Right now, we have about 25 or so, Steve would know the exact number, of people who are in the process, in the flow of wanting to become counselors, okay? But just, to, I wanna walk through this sheet that, that uh, Steve made, and I think he showed last time or the time before, just to kind of understand how the process works, because if you would like to be a counselor, for one, I am very grateful, very excited. I mean, I've been praying, along with a number of other people, that God would raise up people interested in this ministry, okay? Because as the church grows, the need grows, as well too, we need people equipped, okay, with the training that we're doing to be able to speak truth and love very uniquely and in very challenging, difficult circumstances, okay? And so this process is, that you can see kind of up on the screen behind me there, is what we use, okay? The top, uh, I don't know what color that is, blue? Um, ladies, I don't, I don't, there we go, all right. Gray, um, I was close, I think they're in the same family. But that is essentially what our church would require as we train, okay, we have some thoughts and some desires as we seek to shape and mold and equip people. Then the bottom part, the green part, I think, I can say that safely, is uh, the ACBC side, okay, that what they would require in particular. And so where it all starts would be with the application process. So if you desire to be in formal counseling ministry, okay, you would start with the application. A part of the prerequisites for the application would be that you're a member, okay? We would ask that you'd be a member or, or an attender for at least a year, okay? So if you came, you signed up, became a member in six months, we'd ask that you'd be here for at least a year so we can get to know you, have a relationship, etc. cetera. Uh, the next requirement, prerequisite, would be you being a partner's one-on-one -on -one leader. So if you want to meet formally with people, partners is an excellent ministry to get started in. Right, that is discipleship. Uh, and a wonderful ministry. If you don't like partners, and you don't like leading people through it, you probably, I can guarantee you, will not like counseling. And so it's a great kind of, uh, kind of barometer to kind of test and think through that. Then there's the personal evaluation. As you get the application, you'll actually look through some different requirements, okay? Some of them, for example, are spiritual disciplines, okay? Are you disciplined to continue to hear from the counselor, like we've talked about, and to have his counsel, the word of God, shape your life, okay? Your loves, your affections, etc. And then also to another one, there's several of them, I'll just mention one more, is do you have any unrepentant, hard-hearted sin, okay, in your life in particular? If you go through all those personal, okay, evaluations, you think, hey, again, I'm certainly not perfect, none of us are, but I meet those criteria as best as I can tell, then you go ahead and fill out the application. There's two external evaluations that are required. So we have level one, level two. Level one is an elder or a pastor or their wives, 
Level two is anybody like a home fellowship group leader, Titus two leader, et cetera. And so as long as these people have known you for about a year, okay, after coming to the church, and they can speak into your life about the personal evaluation that you did as best as they know. And there's some other criteria that we've given them to use. Essentially, it is that you love people, okay, you're involved in their lives, and you have an ability to communicate truth, okay? That's the basic requirements, all right? And so as you go through the application process, all of those are cleared. We have your application. We'll approve you and we'll place you into, okay, a cohort, okay, essentially. And so we have some folks that are still finishing from last time. As, as uh, Steve mentioned, we call them the legacy folks, okay? Not, I didn't pick the name, but uh, they're, they're the legacy folks. And then we have some folks currently in this class as well too, whether in person or online, that are also too working through this process and this training. And so they need to fill an application. Once they get accepted, they're officially a part of the training, if that makes sense. And so at that point, then they'll enter into phase one. Okay, if you look at phase one in the green section, that first bullet point is fundamental training. And that's what we're doing right now. This is the fundamental training class. And so there's level one, that's the spring, level two in the fall. Okay, like I said, lots of details. This is why it's easy to get a little jumbled up here. And you complete those two levels. You do all the reading, both the ACBC requires. There's reading bullet point there in the green, and there's one up in the gray, bluish square. Um, and, but there's also some other things we'd require. A sanctification project. So what I'll have you do if you want to be a counselor, you've been approved, is to work through a particular struggle, difficulty, sin issue in your life. I want to be able to see, do you know how to take all the things that you're learning and apply it to your own life, okay, and to work out and to grow and change. Okay, this is why we can only take a limited number of people, right? As I, um, we, we train people and I mentor, walk alongside them, it's a lot of time commitment, okay, to be able to do that. And so we unfortunately have a limited amount of people that we're able to take on. And so ACBC in the green has their reading, their observations, a fundamental training that's a part of phase one. We have some additional requirements above there, uh, including a hope paper memorization, reading, et cetera, that we kind of added on that would be helpful. Like the Gospel Treason book, if you guys have been reading that, it's an excellent book. ACBC does not require that. I think it's incredibly important and helpful, along with Riccardi's book on sanctification, for you guys to, to read as you prepare to be a counselor. Along this process, too, as we look at, okay, your work and all of those things as well, too, um, we're evaluating, okay? Uh, I went to seminary. I thought God called me to be a preacher every Sunday morning, okay? This was my idea, my desire, went to, went to seminary, and I found out along the way, you know what? God had a different ministry for me, all right? I had a couple of conversations, and people said, Daniel, we love you, we appreciate you, but it's probably not every Sunday that you should be getting up behind the pulpit, okay? And, um, you know, hey, that was hard. It was a difficult part of life. But, hey, you know what? I love where God has me, and this is where my giftings are. And the God uses the church, in particular church leaders, okay, to guide and help. And that's what a part of this process is, is we want to equip you, but we also want to make sure that you're ready, that you're mature. As you take on people in very hard and difficult circumstances, it's hard. It's difficult. We want to make sure you're prepared, you're ready, you're mature, okay, that it doesn't end up being more difficult or miserable, okay, on you, okay, and if, and if you're equipped, you're ready, prepared, it certainly won't be that way, I trust, big picture. Phase two, after you finish all the training that is level one and two, do all the reading, all the homework, etc., we'll give you a certificate, okay, that says, you know, we'll celebrate with you, essentially, and that you'll be done, okay, with phase one. This process takes about a year, 
okay, to finish the, both the courses, do all the reading, et cetera. It's quite a lot. Phase two, there's not a definitive time period, but it's about another year or so, six months. There's 44 different theological questions and counseling questions that they'll have you answer, okay? 20 and then 24, something like that. And what this will do is really help you to understand theology, okay, to sharpen, equip, maybe even grow your theology in different ways in some critical areas, and then also to help expand and grow you in the area of practical, okay, counseling different cases specifically. And so uh, that's the exam phase. After you turn in your exams and you pass your exams, that's the evaluation part there, you'll be notified from ACBC, and then you'll go to phase three. Phase three is where then you'll do supervised counseling. So at this point, you've learned what you've learned uh, in level one, okay, you've done your exams, you've done the reading, you've had your training, you've seen counseling being done through observation as well too, just like the guys here at our seminary watch preaching, okay, Tom, every single Sunday, okay, they can observe that. We'll have you guys observe counseling, and then lastly, you'll begin meeting with people, okay, that come in, and I'll walk alongside you, you'll turn in forms, and I'll give you feedback, and we'll talk and think through that as you go through your 50 first sessions, okay? So again, this is labor-intensive in many ways, but by the end, okay, this is about a two-year period, might be a little bit longer for some, you'll be equipped, right? You'll, you'll have uh, an understanding, a working knowledge of what to do when, how to take the things that you've learned and to apply those okay, appropriately to the different situations, and you'll be in, in my shoes in many ways, okay, continuing to learn how to do it better and better, okay? We're always learning, all right? I have a couple of courses I, I probably need to go through and take to sharpen and, and grow my understanding in lots of different ways. And so hopefully this makes sense, okay? So if someone says, I wanna be a counselor, there's a process, okay? I would love it if we, the whole church, okay, was, was a counselor in some way, but you know what? God does, has not gifted everyone, everyone that way. We have young kids, maybe there's, it's not the time, the phase of life potentially, okay, or maybe there's the constraint of the amount of people that we're able to take at one time, but hopefully this makes sense overall, or maybe it's slightly clearer, hopefully. Any questions you guys have about this, what we'll do is we'll take them after we uh, meet here in just a little bit, uh, th just to give us a little more time here. If, so if you have questions, Steve and I will be around immediately afterwards. We'd love to chat with you and to help this be just slightly clearer if you have any questions. All right. Well, let's go ahead and open our Bibles and uh, to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. And let's look at verse 23. We've, we've read this verse at least a couple of times over the last couple of meetings. But I would have want to put it in the context very practically of counseling and how I use it in particular. So Proverbs 4.23, let me read it. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Where I, I tend to fit this verse in is in the first three to four sessions, I will, after understanding what is going on in the person's life, after giving them hope, some initial answers, solutions, we always go through the gospel, right, to help them orient themselves, okay, the how to handle life's problems. Jesus died so that we wouldn't live for ourselves, but for him, okay, so the gospel helps them orient themselves to love and serve and please God, okay? By the time I've understood what's going on in their lives, that's, you know, two, three sessions in, 
we, we go over the heart, okay? So the lesson that we went over this last time, I'll go over that with them, okay? Maybe an abbreviated version to help them really understand, okay, that it's not just anger, okay, or depression or whatever it is that they've come in for, okay, but it's the pressures in those areas, okay, and their heart responding. So yes, we might need to do teaching on parenting, we might need to do teaching biblically on anxiety or whatever it may be, but they also need to understand why they, in particular, are anxious. And that's exactly what this verse speaks to. It says, watch over your heart. Okay, remember last time, the heart is the thoughts, desires, our will, okay, and our emotions in particular. Our hearts are active and it responds, okay? It is from the, the place from where our whole entire lives flow up and out of. And so after going through the heart, I'll give this verse for people to memorize and to think through and take some time uh, contemplating. And then when they come back the next time, they'll also be given that kind of little cartoon handout. I think you guys all probably read. I think we gave that out last time. Where are the different hearts? I'll also that contemporary list of different idols. I'll send that to them as well too. That we, we, we went through it in the lesson. And I'll just ask them, think through your heart. What, what might be the, 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 the issue that could potentially be making you anxious or angry, depressed, etc. Okay? And so they come back thinking through their own heart and so then we look at this verse in particular, okay, because we need to watch over our own hearts, okay? And the way that I do that is, is I don't wanna say, hey, listen, I've been listening to you for a couple sessions. It's pretty clear to me that you're controlling, all right? It's usually not the best way, okay, to learn something. All right, I want them to say, you know what, hey, I've thought, I've prayed, I've read this material, I, I've thought about the lesson, I've, I've considered this verse. Hey, here, here's some different themes and some issues I really think Control is really hard when things don't go my way. It's very easy to be anxious or angry or whatever it might be. And to hear some other themes potentially in their life with people or whatever it might be. Everyone's different. And then as we look at this verse, okay, I really want them to understand that very first part. What does it mean biblically for us to watch over our hearts? God calls us to watch over our hearts with all diligence. Other, other translations translate this first part, watch over differently. Uh, you might see in your Bible version or translation, keep, keep the heart with all diligence or potentially guard the heart with all diligence. I think all of these are great translations. They kind of capture a different variation, which I believe there's kind of two senses to this idea here in the Bible. Watch over captures, I think, the bigger picture, but what it means is that we want to guard our hearts. Okay, we wanna be careful, okay, to guard our hearts from outside influences. Okay, the Bible talks about influences. 1 Corinthians 15, says that bad company corrupts good morals. And so we wanna be careful what we let in. Okay, that would include people, but also media and, and other things that we're doing and going and being around. Those things have an impact on our hearts for sure. The other idea here is the idea of keeping, okay? Because it's not just things from without, okay, that we need to guard against. There's stuff bad already in our hearts as we looked at last time. And so we're wanting to watch over, okay, and speak truth to our hearts. Uh, Psalm 15, okay, I think it's verse five, it says that the godly man speaks truth to himself in his heart. Tom has mentioned this, okay, he says not to just talk to yourself, uh, how did he say it? Not to uh, just let yourself run, actually speak to yourself, talk to yourself, and uh, tells himself to be quiet, okay? I think he uses a different word, that's all right. and. Um, you know, so he tells himself to shut up, and that's totally fine, right? To then speak truth, okay, in 
to your heart. And so it's this idea of guarding, okay, and keeping our hearts. And the Bible calls us here to do that with all diligence. Okay, another Bible translation, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, says that this we should do it above all else. That's an interesting translation. Okay, so there's a diligence, a pursuit, okay, in doing this. Why, again, does the Bible put so much emphasis on the heart? It's from where all of our lives come about of. Okay, and our lives are going to be either about Christ, loving and serving and honoring him and loving people, okay, and his word is going to provide the guidelines to do that, or it's going to be about us, okay, ultimately. And so as we watch over our hearts, okay, we want to think about that way. And as I talk through this in the counseling room, I talk about this in the context of the things that they see, right, that they've lived for themselves in very often and that we need to continue to work through, all right? It's not the outside circumstances. Wasn't their children, okay, or their husband that made them angry, or their next door neighbor, okay? It was the response of their own heart, okay, because they want to control or whatever it might be, and we need to work through those things in particular. All right, as we get started and think more about the heart, even today, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we're thankful for our time. Lord, help us to think biblically. Uh, allow, uh, just allow me, Lord, to teach clearly, Lord, your truth. I pray, Lord, each one here, for whatever reason, Lord, they're here with a personal or ministry or to be a counselor, Lord, that you would work in their lives, their hearts, to shape them and to use them, Lord, ultimately for your glory. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, like uh, times before, let's go ahead and do a quick review of our teaching from last time. We looked at understanding the need for change in the heart, understanding the need for change in the heart. So we looked at three things under that, understanding man's need of change, understanding what needs to change, then lastly, very briefly, we looked at understanding how we change. So understanding man's need of change, we looked at the macro look at the problem of sin, that is its origin and progression, its origin being Genesis 3, its progression all the way up through all of human history in every one of us, okay, until today, and then as also to how all of that, the sin that's impacted all of us, affects our worship, okay? We saw the effects of sin and the significant problems, okay, that each of these create in our lives. We looked at total depravity or radical corruption, if you remember that. We also looked at understanding what needs to change, and that's the micro look, okay, the zoomed-in look at the problem of sin as it affects worship, and the specific location, okay, where our sin resides, that is the heart, Okay, sin has impacted our thinking, our desires, our affections, our choices, or will, and our emotions, or the way that we feel. And what drives the heart in particular is worship. Okay, those, that is the things that we value, what we believe is worthy or important. Okay, because all these things shape our priorities. Then the frustration. This God created us to glorify, to worship, to honor Him, but our worship has been frustrated. That is through idolatry. Our trajectory is not always, in other words, towards loving God and other people. It's self-centered. And this is when sin is accomplished, okay, and problems, okay, spur in our lives. We also looked at examples to help us understand what our worship looks like through words like study, dedicate, identify, sacrifice, singing, etc. Okay, those, those were those worship words, if you guys remember that. And it showed how, we looked at how these can be lived out Okay, and something common like sports. Okay, we looked at the Green Bay Packers. Okay, just to make sure it's not too close to home. Okay, for, for most of us. 
We also looked at many contemporary labels for idolatry, such as man's approval, health, wealth, pleasure, safety, comfort, leisure, security, significance, and, and many, many more. Here's, here's the big picture. i to wrap all that up. These are things that we value, can value, and that therefore shape our priorities, and consequently, okay, if we're not careful, can supplant Christ and his lordship in our lives. They become things that we live for besides him and replace him. This idolatry then leads us to sin, to get what we want, or to sin when we don't get what we want, which causes the problems emotionally and otherwise that are often the topic of counseling. And so as you look kind of big picture, John said at the end of the book of 1 John, last verse, he said, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And this is what we want to continually do as we think about who and what we're living for in particular. Last, we looked at understanding how we change that is the, the macro look at our worshiping hearts and how they're transformed in particular. So we looked at regeneration, transformation, progressive sanctification, in other words, and then glorification as well too. So lastly, before I ask for any questions, and we do our book giveaway, if uh, anybody has any questions, the quick application is that we must watch over our hearts diligently so that we love and serve the Lord, okay, and not self. Okay, watch over our hearts all diligently so that we love and serve the Lord and not self. And just a quick side note, this can only happen, right? Us loving and serving the Lord through the graces, okay? With the impact of the graces that God has provided, his word, his spirit, etc. okay? And not our own strength, all right? If you guys want to love God, love others more, Okay, there's no chart, okay, even the charts we looked at last time, okay, with the heart and all that, okay, as amazing as some of those may be, thank you, Steve, okay, it's the word, okay, it's the graces, it's the fellowship, it's the truth, ultimately, through the Spirit, that's going to transform our lives to love and worship and honor and value God the way that we should, it's only through that 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 can happen. All right, Psalm 1 is an excellent picture of that, as we meditate in the word, Okay, the fruit of the Spirit, okay, ultimately is produced. All right, any questions as you guys think about the teaching from last time? And Steve back there is ready with some books if there are any questions. Any questions? Let me grab some water if I can find some here. Daniel. Sure. Yeah, so just to repeat your question real quick, for one, to make sure I understand it, that for those also listening, you're saying that uh, could we want something good so much that we might sin in particular, and does that make sense? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and you know, like we talked about last time, I, th- I thought it is helpful and would be helpful to talk about today, is yeah, if you, if you are determined, okay, it's your highest desire, okay, you are being humble, you want to love God, honor Him, Okay, he's helped you okay, through his word, his spirit. Okay, I don't think if that's your goal and ambition, you're going to ultimately sin. Okay? I think in those cases, you see your brother not love God like he should. Yeah, it might, there might be righteous anger there, but it's not going to be sinful anger. 
Okay, you might be moved and bothered with it, I think, and rightly so, as that person maybe is not loving his wife, okay, like he should, okay, for example. But what you're going to do is you're also, if you're loving God, you're going to do the things that God wants you to do. You're going to say, God wants me to be patient. God wants me to pray. God wants me to encourage my brother and bear with my brother, okay, and to be patient, you know, with my brother. All, all of those types of things. And... Uh, and to do everything that you can to help confront your brother potentially as well too. But I don't believe if, you're, if that's your highest desire, okay, and God has so changed your life, okay, and you know what God wants you to do to love and serve and honor him, that you're going to sin ultimately, okay? Usually people can want good things, but those good things, like we mentioned here, you know, success is not a wrong thing. Health is not a wrong thing to desire, but when those things become our chief desire, okay, what we're living for, okay, it replaces God, okay, and that's when we're willing to sin, okay, to get those things that we want, or sin when we don't get the things that we want, ultimately. That makes sense? Yeah. Any other questions? I can take two more. Uh, John, I think, was first, and Carol. Sure, yeah, you know what, that was actually something I was going to talk to Steve. Yeah, in the past, we've actually had a syllabus. It's just there's so many papers and so much information, we just did not do that this time. But yes, if you'd like something like that, we do have recommended reading as you work through. So really what you should be reading now is the Gospel of Treason, if you'd like to follow along, because that really deals with the heart, which Steve has right there. Do you have that book? Yeah. You do, okay. Do you have the Sanctification book? Yeah, we have Okay, all right. Yeah, I would do the, the gospel one, and then I would do sanctification next because that's what we'll be talking about today and, and beyond. So, yep. Yeah, good, great question. And then, Carol? Yeah, so along with this question over there, can you give us examples of righteous anger and unrighteous anger? I absolutely will. It's level two. Okay. <laughs> Come to level two, and I will do that extensively. Yeah, our, we have a whole message just on anger. Yeah, it's, it's hard to explain kind of in a short period of time, but I'd still love to give you a book. Uh, let's see here. One more question. So we have like tendency where you see like you start to discontent, think that discontent leads to anger, lust, etc. Sure. And then that keeps spiraling down. Do you deal with the discontent first, like the root of the sin, or do you deal with the symptoms and then maybe they're more willing to deal with that discontent? Yeah, so the question is is when there's kind of multiple multiple layers, there's discontentment, you know, anger. You know, a lot of different things kind of compacted into one is, and this is kind of a higher level kind of question in some sense. But what we'll do is, is the first couple sessions, few sessions, we really seek to understand what's going on. And then we work through, okay, what really is most important to address? What's going to make the most impact? And um, it, it's kind of hard to give a more detailed answer than that. As we go along, I'll, I'll share more, if that makes sense. But that's what I want to do is, is uh, kind of in the second or third session, I'll, I'll write out a list of what I'm seeing in that person's life and we'll talk through an approach to dealing with it that tries to, you know, not put the cart before the horse, okay, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a, honestly just, it's part of just case wisdom is just knowing what to deal with first, what's most influential, what can be categorized together, not all those types of things, so, yep. All right, we'll appreciate those questions. And uh, let's go ahead now transition over to our notes for today. In looking at 
understanding the biblical process of change. Now that we better understand man's need for change and what needs to change, that is our heart, our worship, of the next few classes, we'll look at the biblical process of change. And so let's look at some general considerations. We'll start with sanctification and look at its, uh, how it's defined. Uh, number one here, sanctification or to sanctify means to make holy. All right? And so holiness carries this idea of moral perfection. That's what we're talking about as we're sanctified. We're made more and more holy. And a key to this is that the it's a person, okay? God is the ultimate standard of perfection, of holiness. And so it's not some person's standard, okay? That would be very problematic. If you've ever done evangelism, you found out that most people's standards are very problematic, okay? I'm a good person, okay, for example, right? We are not good standards, okay, for goodness or perfection or holiness. It is God, okay? His perfect character. And so as we are sanctified, as we are made more holy, Okay, through sanctification, we become more and more like Jesus Christ. Number two, it carries the idea, sanctification carries the idea of being separated from sin and being made useful to God. Turn over to 2 Timothy, and we'll look at this idea here. I think this is encouraging as we just consider the importance of the impact. I think all of us want to be more useful, to be used by the Lord, and in uh, the lives of others, our family, etc. And so this verse, I think, is incredibly encouraging about the result, the impact that sanctification has on our lives. So Second uh, Timothy 2, verse 21, it says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, speaking about sin issues above, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. And so as, as we grow to love God, Okay, to know his word, his will better. Okay, it transforms our lives. Okay, we're able to love other people okay, more consistently okay, and better. And so we're able to be, in other words, more useful. So as we become more holy, okay, we become more useful as God cleanses us and transforms our lives. Let's look at B, sanctification stages. Just kind of have a big picture here. First one is positional sanctification. Just kind of to hang your hat on this. This is salvation, okay? As, as the Bible talks about how we're saved, this is the bigger picture or idea of salvation, okay, in particular. So positional sanctification happens at the moment of salvation where we're justified, okay? Our hearts are regenerated, okay, and transformed. And uh, this is where we are saved, in other words, okay, going back to salvation, from the penalty of our sin. We're saved from the penalty of our sin, so some people have called this definitive sanctification, but this is where we are positionally sanctified by being placed into the person of Jesus. Okay? We are sanctified, set apart, regenerated. Okay? Now we love God, want to be pleasing to Him, okay? and so we are sanctified initially. So that's positional sanctification. Number two is progressive sanctification. When most people say just sanctification, this is what they're talking about. Okay, that is the growth spiritually that we have day to day in our actual lives. This is called progressive sanctification. It is, in other words, salvation or freedom from the power that sin has presently in our lives. Okay, that we would obey its lusts. Number three is perfect sanctification or complete sanctification. This is also glorification. That is, when we will see Jesus Christ, we will be saved or made free from the very presence of sin in our lives, okay? And so positional, 
progressive and perfect. One verse that actually captures all three of these ideas in one is Philippians 1 verse 6 where it says, the work that he's began in us, he's he'll be faithful to continue until the day of Christ Jesus. And so the three different okay, uh, ways we're sanctified in that one verse. Okay, it captures salvation as a whole. See, let's look at a definition of progressive sanctification. Wayne Grudem describes it as a, pros a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Okay, and so as you guys think about this, this is exactly what follows very naturally. As we've looked at the problem, we looked at sin, the way it impacts our hearts, the next thing to look at is sanctification, growth, and change to love God and people better. Okay, the only way we can do this okay, is by understanding D, that is sanctification's position and power. We talked about a moment ago, number one, that sanctification begins when we are placed positionally into the person of Christ. This is Romans chapter 6 as well as other passages as well too. Okay, when we are saved, we are baptized into Christ Jesus. Okay? We die with him, and we are raised with him as well, too. All right? We have that resurrection power. Okay? The power of sin is broken, okay? and now we can walk in newness of life. And so sanctification's position okay, is possible because of our being placed in Jesus Christ. Number two, sanctification is possible because the Holy Spirit energizes or empowers our efforts. You remember 2 Corinthians 3.18? It says that as we behold okay, the glory of the Lord, we are then being transformed into one level of glory, okay, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Okay? And so we have the responsibility, as you guys will read in Michael Cardi's book, if you read that one, we have the responsibility to behold the truth, okay, the Word of God. And as we behold it, the Spirit of God transforms us to be like Christ. We cannot become more holy or like Christ in any way, sense, or form without the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? One of the most diligent saints okay, that's ever walked the face of the earth arguably is Jonathan Edwards. Okay? If you've read his resolutions, okay, they are particularly humbling, and to know that he began to write them as a teenager is probably even slightly more humbling okay, for those of us especially that have teenagers, okay, potentially, or were teenagers, okay, maybe even better so. But he was an incredibly disciplined person. He used to keep a diary of how food made him feel, if it was sleepy or energy, so that he could study for longer periods of time. This was a very diligent person. At the end of his life, Jerry Bridges records that he said that he was convinced that no effort on his part could make him holy to one degree without God's grace. That's a pretty amazing statement, okay, from a person who was so diligent. We are dependent upon Christ and the Spirit of God to become more holy. Let's look at E, that is how sanctification differs from justification. Justification is simply a declaration that we are righteous. Okay, this happens at the moment okay, of regeneration and transformation okay, when we first repent and believe in Jesus and his work is applied to our lives. So justification is a legal standing. It is once for all time, again at the moment of conversion. It is entirely God's work, okay, not ours, to make us right, in other words, with him. It is perfect in his life. It is complete, the words, and then also, too, it is the same in all Christians. Okay? There's not varying degrees. Okay? We are not made partly right. We are made fully right with God. Sanctification differs in that it is in an internal condition, not a legal standing. It is continuous throughout this life. 
we cooperate, okay, as we behold the glory, as we work hard to discipline ourselves for godliness, as 2 Timothy calls us to, then the God, the God works, okay, in our lives to transform us, okay, and so it is also not perfect in this life, okay, it is also greater in some than in others, and it's going to be made complete, okay, that is perfect sanctification when we see Jesus Christ and enter, okay, into glory ultimately. All right, let's look at some sample models, that is, we'll look at three different models of sanctification, and when I say model, what I mean is, is that there are different views, okay, in the church for how we're sanctified, okay, as we've been talking, thinking through this, uh, where I land is pretty clear, probably, all right, once we get to the one that I believe and that our church believes and teaches, but I think this is helpful, okay, as you interact with other Christians, okay, as I went to seminary, I realized my church back home had a different model than what I was being taught, okay, and so we had some different practices, and it was very helpful to understand that. So let's first look at the Wesleyan view. Some have called this Christian perfectionism. It is a second work of grace that catapults the believer into a state of sinless, sinlessness, which is often called entire sanctification. Sin is defined as only that which is a willful transgression of the known, of God, uh, known law of God. Anything we do not clearly intend to do, okay, or are ignorant of is merely a mistake. Okay, spiritual growth takes place after the second work of grace by simply increasing in good works, okay, quantity, etc. Okay. And so as you guys look at this chart, you have this in your notes, and if it's up on the screen as well too, that second work of grace that catapults that person is kind of where that squiggly line stops and kind of where the rocket ship takes off. Okay. And then there's a straight line because the person doesn't grow in Christ at all okay, because they're perfect. And so if you go back to the cross, just to understand this diagram, that is when a person is initially saved, okay, they initially become a Christian. And that up and down line, okay, kind of ca captures or, or characterizes how they are, it seems that they're growing, okay. The high marks mean they're more like Christ, the lower marks mean they're less. Here's the problem with this chart. The low marks are the same, uh, you know, they're the same height, okay, and the high marks are the same height as you get uh, uh, longer in, in the Christian life, okay? There's, there, there's no upward trajectory. That's a problem, okay? This has been, been said to, to, to be uh, an Arminian view of salvation, that a person, okay, and this is the same thing that will go with the next chart as we look at the Keswick view, that a person can be a Christian, okay, but not really particularly a disciple, okay, necessarily, and so, but just to elaborate a little bit more on this view, if you go back, there's some problems with this theologically. If you want to turn over to 1 John real quick, we'll look at this. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, again, if you remember, they define sin as only a willful transgression of the known law of God, and anything that we do not clearly intend to do or ignorant of is merely a mistake, okay? So they believe, in other words, they don't sin. Okay, that's the Christian perfectionism view. But listen to verse 8 in 1 John chapter 1. It says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I think that's about as clear of a rebuttal. Okay, I don't know that we need to talk about the allegorical method or the grammatical historical method. I think that's pretty straightforward okay, as you think about that. And so a person that believes this, they, they, they respond to, to somebody cutting them off on the road. They get angry, sinfully, say something they shouldn't, and they say, oh, that was just a mistake. I didn't intend to do that, therefore it's not sinful. 
Okay, it's pretty easy. The, the standard is low, in other words, to be perfect. Okay, but I think that it's very, very clear here that as you look at this model, and even the next one, that uh, uh, Philippians uh, 1.6 is not part okay, of this model. God is continuing to work in our lives until the day of salvation, but that's not evident in this model at all. Let's look at the Keswick view real quick. Uh, this one might be more familiar in different ways. Uh, I was, when I was working at Taco Bell, after I first became a Christian in my early 20s, uh, I, I was told by one of my coworkers that his pastor never sinned, and so I've come in contact with that. Maybe you guys have come into contact with that. I was blown away. I thought, wow, that's interesting. Um, uh, the Keswick view is also called the higher life or deeper life or victorious Christian life. And it is a unique post-salvation commitment. If you guys see your chart there, that rocket ship that kind of takes off to the higher part, is that that post-salvation commitment or enlightenment that allows the believer to enter into a victorious and consistent life of obedience. The struggle with sin continues, but it is lessened significantly by the new truth that has been understood and accepted. Spiritual growth takes place after that primarily by a passive trust in the work of God appropriately represented by the slogan, let go <clears throat> and let God. Have you guys heard that slogan before? I think it's a pretty common one. This may be a little bit more uh, of a common view uh, in our circles, families, etc. <clears throat> and so there's kind of a two-step process to this view. Step one would be to surrender or to let go, <clears throat> where a Christian completely gives themselves to Christ, okay, their hopes, their ambitions, all of that, okay? And from here, they would view that any effort to overcome sin, okay, is counterfeit, ultimately. Step two is to have faith and to let God, specifically meaning that <clears throat> uh, they believe that God is obligated to keep believers from sin's power. And so they let go and let God. There's passivity, okay, in their Christian life. All right, when I was <clears throat> at the church I first got saved at, uh, this was essentially a variation of this view as a revivalist. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever heard of that, but we used to have revival meetings. Okay, we didn't have tents or anything like that. You know, we stayed in the air conditioning, which I appreciate that in Texas. But uh, <clears throat> they would come and they'd preach revival and surrender. Okay, surrendering to Christ, and that's what the pastor and our deacons, okay, who are all elders essentially believe that was going to catapult the church, okay, into a more consistent life of obedience, okay? It was a variation of this model. And so as you look at this model, they kind of think there's kind of two steps, all right? That cr the cross, again, represents the person getting saved, and then they would say that kind of catapult up is when a person gets serious, okay? That's when they surrender, okay? The way I might interpret this, and we could interpret this, is that a person possibly is not a Christian, Okay, until they get serious, okay, until they actually repent. If you look at surrender and faith, that sounds a lot like what Jesus calls us to do in the gospel, okay, or at least fairly close to it. And so this Keswick view, okay, a variation, another Arminian view, uh, has some challenges as well, too, as you look at it. Okay, very likely that very first part could be considered easy believism, as some have called. There's really no commitment, okay, to that to, to Christ, okay, ultimately. Uh, their lives kind of come up and down, uh, but there's no consistent or clear pattern of growth, okay, in particular. All right, let's look at number three, the, the biblical view of progressive sanctification, commonly referred to as the Reformed view, 
So we looked at the Wesleyan view, the Keswick view, then the biblical view. So I guess you guys probably know which one we're going to hold. Okay, think about that. Uh, I think it's been called the Reformed view as well, too. But this is categorized. I'll read a bit here. It says, a lifelong cycle of sin, okay, confession, repentance, forgiveness, renewal, and growth in our faith in Christ that will only be complete when we meet our Lord. This is accomplished through the active discipline of the believer who trusts that the Holy Spirit is energizing their efforts. Here's some thoughts from the Westminster Confession. I think it has an excellent statement, okay, on progressive sanctification. They write, they who are effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in them, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, and they are more and more quickened and strengthened in all the saving graces to the practice of true holiness, without which no man will see the Lord. This sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, in which war, though the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome, and so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's a pretty awesome definition. Hopefully that's an encouragement as you guys think about that. Right? Certainly the flesh, we have all experienced the battle, okay, the pull, the draw okay, towards self-centeredness, away from Christ, but we have all grown, okay, progressively. If you look at that chart that you guys have, the cross, again, representing when a person comes to faith in Christ, they've repented, they've placed their faith and trust in Jesus, they've become a new person, okay, they've been regenerated, changed, and so then they start this progress, this process, okay, of repentance and understanding the word better, okay, the Spirit of God helping them, Okay, as they understand and comp comprehend and apply the truth, they grow slowly. And this is a progression over time. There's some highs and lows, but those lows get higher and the highs get higher over time. So there's an upward trajectory, all right? This is exactly what Philippians 1.6 characterizes as well, too. Dr. Street, who some of you may know, he came to our church last September. He's a professor at the Master's Seminary and, and University. And the way that he explained this, which I thought was very helpful, was he, he explained it as a person, okay, holding a yo-yo, walking upstairs, okay? And they're, they, they, they're playing with yo-yo. And so as they're going up, okay, they're slowly going up, okay, as they go up the stairs. The yo-yo not going quite as low as it did before, and also, too, as they progress up the stairs, going higher, okay, as they mature in Christ, right? And this has been practically helpful for me because there's been some moments in my life where I've thought, you know what? The the yo-yo is scraping on the staircase at the moment. Unfortunately, this is the low moment, and Lord forgive me. Okay, and then there's also been those moments certainly where those those highs, okay, but to have a balance and an understanding, okay, of the continued be thankful to the Lord, but to understand that continued upward trajectory and the movement, okay, of the yo-yo, if we want to put it that way. Hopefully that helps as you guys think about progressive sanctification. All right, here's some thoughts and discussion. Many people who claim to believe the biblical uh, view nonetheless fall practically into the errors of these other approaches. 
Number one, here are some ways they do that. We may echo both the Wesleyan and Keswick view when we seem to be waiting for some divine event that will take away the strongest pulls of sin and eliminate the need for concentrated, spirit-dependent discipline and self-control in the Word. Number two, we may echo the Wesleyan view specifically when we sin but simply call it a mistake and will not take responsibility, or we never ask for forgiveness from God or others as if we have reached perfection. You guys would be surprised how many people, couples, okay, husband and wife, don't ask for forgiveness on a regular, ongoing basis. You guys, if we sin every day for the most part, and again, hopefully not against each other every single day, there should be an ongoing okay, confession and a humbling of ourselves to seek forgiveness. Men, this has to be something that we lead in in particular, okay, as we humble and model that in our homes and make it safe for our wives to be able to come and confess their sin as well, too, that we'd be gracious and merciful and kind and forgiving. Number three, we may echo the Keswick view specifically when we admit that we sin all the time, but seldom if ever seek to grow and change, okay? It's practically as if we've let go and let God, okay? In other words, we're just hoping he'll sanctify us and we're not participating, working diligently to renew our minds and to put off sin and put on righteousness. All right. With the last 15 minutes or so, we'll get through as much of this as we can here. Let's look at some key elements within the, the, the change process. In the believer's pursuit of knowing, loving, and serving our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he must possess a deep theological understanding of sin and guilt, conscience, repentance, faith, the forgiveness and covering, and replacement, which includes mind renewal and putting off and putting on, in order to help change personally, okay, and others change biblically as well too. We will look at some of those today, okay, in just a moment, and the rest over the next couple of weeks. We have a break like uh, Steve mentioned, and then the next two classes after this one will be on these topics as well. Because these concepts are so central to the doctrine of sanctification, Satan, the world, and man's sinful flesh will work overtime to distort them. Let's look at sin and guilt. Okay, if we were to answer the question, what is sin? Okay, if we're looking at A there, the Shorter Catechism explains it this way, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. We could point to 1 John 3, 4, where it says that sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It is, in other words, missing the mark, as some theologians have characterized it as. We have fallen short, in other words, of the glory of God. The ESV Study Bible uh, defines it this way. Sin is anything, whether in thought, action, or attitude, that does not express or conform to the holy character of God in his moral law. I think that's a great definition. So that sin, let's look at guilt, okay, which is the response to sin often in our own hearts, and even as we'll look at in just a moment ago, the definition that it's even separate of that. And so we'll define guilt in a moment, but let's first look at the contemporary war on guilt. The contemporary war on guilt, the world, in other words, says that guilt is our enemy, and I can understand that fully. Okay, if I had a naturalistic worldview that did not include God, okay, and the lawgiver, ultimately, I would think guilt was a pretty terrible thing, all right? Why would we feel guilty? Okay, what's wrong and what's right? Okay, that would all be relative in so many ways, and so I can understand why they feel that way. Our world, okay, you could go beyond that, has declared a war on guilt because it doesn't make people feel good. Okay, you go to a psychologist, you go to therapy, okay, they're not going to talk about sin, 
ultimately. That's gonna make people feel bad. That's the opposite of their goal, right? Making people feel good. And so they want to uh, say it's the, the, the fault of something else, which we'll look at here in a second. So guilt does not make people feel good because it tends to result in condemnation and with it the threat of judgment. The, the, this negative judgment, whether by God or those we know, can lead to fear and anxiety, depression, etc., or the negative feelings that guilt brings can lead someone to feel depressed if a solution is not found. Reincurring guilt can also lead to an attitude of self-contempt, self-hate, even anger, and suicide. Okay, guilt can have a radically negative impact in our lives if not dealt with. We don't deal with our sin. Terrible things can happen. Look at Cain's life in particular if you remember God's exhortation to him. This denial of guilt is dangerous because if one does not think of guilt rightly, it removes the possibility of sin and the need of a savior. So guys, as we look at sin, one book that I don't have you guys don't have on your list, not to add too many more here, but the Gospel Primer is an excellent book. Okay, as we think about sin, the gospel needs to balance our understanding of how sinful we are. Okay, who we are in Christ, right? Uh, Ephesians 1 to 3 comes before how we're to live, okay, in particular. And so as we think about that, the gospel, who we are in Christ, as we've been talking about, is so critical and important, right? We're made right with him. All those things are true of us. And so let's look at, again, another part of this war, that is how the world explains or explanations for the effects of guilt. Okay, they explain it away or say it's not my fault because of this. So no one can deny that depression, conflict, hatred, greed, hedonism, and other problems are rampant in society today. But those problems are often explained away by the following. Number one, our environment. Okay, people are raised in, unfortunately, in, in very difficult home situations, poverty, etc., difficult uh, negative environments. But this also is true of the other side, okay? There are people who are wealthy, okay? That don't turn out great either, okay? And so people have blamed it, says, why, are, why is life like this? Why are there problems? It's their environment, okay? It's the way they're raised. And we certainly, as we look at biblical counseling, realize that there's an impact, okay, of our environment and influence. I quoted 1 Corinthians 15, 33 earlier, okay? Bad company corrupts good morals. There certainly is that. But what the Bible teaches is that our, okay, who we are, all right, is not, the, our environment is not determinative of who we are in particular, okay? We all are responsible for how we respond to life's circumstances, okay? And because we're sinful, we can respond poorly to bad circumstances like poverty, or we can respond poorly to good circumstances, okay? Like being very wealthy potentially as well too, okay? Also to sickness, some people may call or explain away the effects of guilt by calling guilt a sickness. Okay, if you have a naturalistic worldview, why would we feel guilty? Well, it's a problem. There's something malfunctioning, in other words, in their view, in our minds. And so it's the result of something that is wrong with us. And if we have a naturalistic worldview, that would make perfect sense. Why would we feel guilty, right? Why do, you know, where, where, where does our conscience and all that come from? That makes, would make no sense, ultimately. Number three is our heredity. So people would maybe say that some people are more biologically disposed, okay, than others to feel guilty and bad and wrong. That could be a way they explain it away. Some people have also said that this guilt is false. Okay, we'll talk more about this a little bit later. Um, shame also, too, is a way that they've, they've uh, explained it away, that they say we should not feel bad about who we are. Okay, that is very prevalent in our culture nowadays. 
okay? But shame is the result of guilt, okay? As we have rebelled, okay, against God, all right? This is why Adam and Eve ran and hid, okay, after they sinned in the Garden of Eden. There was shame, they were exposed, they realized they were naked. And so uh, what are some ways that people have tried to eliminate the effects of guilt? Look at B. Some people have just simply sinned more, okay? Uh, some people would offer the advice that you need to keep on sinning until you don't feel guilty or bad anymore, okay? But we could ask theologically, biblically, would this work? Uh, unfortunately, it actually would. If we sin against our consciences, what happens? Our conscience is seared. And so this would work. There was a story where a, a woman came in. She was struggling with sexual promiscuity. She felt ridden by guilt, was asking the psychologist for help okay, to change and grow because she felt it was wrong. You know what he said? It's not wrong. Just continue doing it, and you will stop feeling bad about it. Okay? That's counsel. You don't have the word of God you could potentially give. Another way to eliminate the effects of guilt, some people have used chemicals, okay, antidepressants, okay, or common. We're going to talk more about that extensively in level two. Okay, so we can't go into all of that, the different vari variations. We certainly support doctors and what they prescribe, okay? But there are times where people feel guilty and bad, and those bad feelings are addressed with antidepressants, okay? I was meeting with a guy who had molested a child. He was arrested. Uh, very significant consequences in our society for that, and rightly so. His children were taken away from him. He was not allowed to come to church anymore uh, because to be around kids. I had to go to his house or, or talk to him on the phone, and he was just completely broken. And some of it I completely understood. You know, those circumstances would be incredibly hard. But instead of really having godly sorrow, I believe it was motivated by worldly sorrow. He was all bothered about the consequences of his sin and, and his kids being taken away, which understandable, there's some of that. But that he wasn't focused on truly making things right between him and God. And so I warned him, I said, look, you know, if you want to go to a doctor, I, I understand, but hey, we need to still meet. This is a spiritual issue. You have sinned against God. You've sinned against this little girl, okay? And we need to sort that out, okay? Going and feeling better is not the solution. This guy went, he took some uh, pills, and I had one more phone conversation where he was elated. Very different than all the conversations before I never saw him again. And so our world looks to chemicals, okay? Uh, putting a pill in our mouth to lose weight or solve any kind of problem quick, fast, and easy. Okay? Chemicals could include drugs and illegal drugs and things like that as well too, of course. Blame shifting, okay, this has happened since Adam and Eve, okay, well, how do you not feel guilty? Well, it's somebody else's fault. It's the woman you gave me or, you know, whatever the case may be. Okay, that's one way. Uh, Self-esteem, okay, if, if we are ashamed, okay, we feel bad about something we do, well, we're not going to feel good about ourselves, so what's the solution according to some? Well, we just need to have a higher view of ourselves. Okay, we just need to feel better about self, have more self-esteem, but you uh, switch that word, the, the phrase, it uh, becomes very obvious what it is, esteeming self. Okay, the Bible doesn't call us to do that. The last one is self-gratification. Okay, this is probably one we've all okay, been guilty of. Okay, we feel bad, sad, etc. We go to ice cream, Netflix, okay, whatever it might be, okay, just to, just to lighten the load just a little bit instead of going to God to address our guilt. And so we looked at sin and guilt and looked at the world's war on guilt. Let's look at a biblical understanding of guilt. Let's see here. Let's see if we can get through this. All right. Here's the definition. The definition of guilt is a legal liability or culpability for punishment. Culpability just simply means that we are responsible for a wrong 
okay, committed, okay, a sin committed. Number one, the fact of guilt versus the feeling of guilt. This is really important to understand, okay, uh, guilt is a fact, not a feeling. Okay, although we often experience guilt, okay, by way of feeling as well too, okay. The term guilt, okay, just to clarify that, refers to the fact of liability and not the feeling that can accompany it. Negative feelings are instead a result of doing something we know is wrong, okay, that is we go against our conscience. Therefore, if we do something sinful but do not know it is, we will often not feel guilty. So we can be truly guilty but not feel guilty. All right, maybe our conscience is seared. Maybe there's some ignorance, okay, of, of what sin is in particular. And so we want to clarify that we can sin and be guilty, but not feel guilty, okay? The feeling guilty is not guilt itself. It often accompanies it. It's a function of our conscience doing something that we believe is wrong. Okay, let's look at dealing with guilt. We must never minimize the fact of guilt, okay? Guilt is universal because sin is universal, Guilt is serious because God is a holy judge, and guilt will remain if, even if it is explained away or its effects are somehow lessened. And where guilt remains, punishment is inevitable. Okay? Uh, when we seek, we're not seeking to ma maximize. I think very many times we seek to minimize guilt. People feel bad, they feel terrible. We don't want them to feel that way. So we say, hey, don't, don't feel so bad. You know? But oftentimes what we need to do in counseling Okay, just like Paul did to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 7, that letter he wrote in the interim, okay, he wrote to actually help them feel bad. Why? Because he wanted to lead them to godly sorrow and to repentance. And so most of the time in counseling, we're not trying to, to help people uh, uh, feel less bad often. Okay, we can do that, unfortunately. But we're actually trying to help them feel worse okay, about their sin. Okay, because very naturally as sinners, we justify those things. Someone's not loving their wife. Okay, a wife's not respecting her husband. Children are rebellious against their parent. Well, they don't feel too bad about that. They don't have godly sorrow that they've offended God, and we need to help them develop that very often. And so we must never minimize the fact of guilt. Very often, we're actually trying to maximize it in their life to help them understand what they've done and the seriousness of it. Another way to, uh, to say this is we must never minimize the fact of guilt is to say that we must never minimize sin. Okay, and it's an impact on the relationship to God and others. Number two, we must never minimize the feeling of guilt. Okay, like I said a moment ago, someone would say, I feel so bad, and we say we shouldn't feel, you shouldn't feel that way. Okay, yeah, we want to comfort, we want to encourage, we want to allow guilt, okay, to rest on people's conscience in a way that God truly wants to, all right? We want people to know instead how to respond to their conscience, okay? Letting them know that they've done something Sinful. We want to point them to Christ ultimately. And so this is true because there will always be an underlying reason for guilty feelings, and taking them seriously provides great hope for change. We also must never underestimate the effects of guilt. Okay, we don't have time, or I'd turn here with you, but Psalm 32 and 38 characterize David's, uh, the weight that David felt okay, of sin upon him when he did not confess it. Uh, guilt Okay, can do great, uh, have a great impact on people's lives. Okay, whether it be a godly person or an ungodly person as well too. Number three, the warning light that reveals guilt. This is the conscience. God has given us the faculty of the conscience to help us identify the presence of guilt. The word literally means a knowing within and has been defined as the soul reflecting upon itself. 
Our inner man okay, uses our minds, use the information that it possesses to evaluate our thinking and actions, much like a diagnostic program perpetually running on a computer. And so our conscience, in other words, is us thinking about what we've done in terms of right and wrong. And our conscience is only informed with what we know. Okay? If we don't know it's wrong, we won't believe and feel that it's wrong either. And so again, the conscience involves what we know or believe rather than what we feel. Feelings are often the result of the operation of the conscience but are not identical with them. Because of sin, and this hopefully helps okay, clarify this, because of sin, we may believe something is right, but feel hesitant or even hostile towards it. And we may feel good about what we know is wrong. Okay, who has laughed at, a, at something that you thought was funny that you immediately thought, oh, that shouldn't be funny? Okay, that it was sinful or wrong, okay, to laugh at that, okay? And so, because of sin, these things can be twisted and challenging, okay, in our own hearts, and we want to help people to work through that. And so, ultimately, because of these truths, the conscience should never be our guide, it should be our guard, okay? The Word of God has to be what guides and directs us, okay? The, the conscience, okay, our conscience, we believe is right and wrong, should only be our guard, okay? We shouldn't do things, in other words, that we believe are wrong. All right, let's look at the importance of the clean conscience, um, let's see here. Let's fly through this. Um, I haven't gone over yet, so hopefully this is slightly okay. All right. Real quick. Im explicit references. Okay, if you look at 1 Timothy 1.19, I would have turned there, but it says that neglecting our conscience, keeping a good conscience, leads to a shipwreck of our faith. I mean, very critical, very important. Okay, there's implicit references in Romans uh, 14, okay, verse 23, that, that anyone who does something without faith, that is believing it's right, okay, honoring to God, to them it's sin. Okay, that's the conscience, okay, ultimately. Okay, one of my kids the other night, <clears throat> um, we told them they could not have chips, and uh, then I changed my mind as we realized we had plenty, okay, for the dish that my wife was making, and then it was okay. One of them heard us say it was okay, one did not. So one actually ate the chips freely, the other one I saw hiding the chips, okay, and eating them. <laughs> Well, they were, they were both actually not doing something that was wrong, but one of them was actually sinning because they did not hear that, and so they were hiding, and I saw them, and so I, we had to have a conversation, okay, about that, if that makes sense, all right? And so anything done without faith, okay, ultimately is sin. Guilt comes from doing something wrong or doing something I think is wrong, and so, for example, going to a place where I think is wrong or even even though it's not clearly said to be sin or wrong in God's word. So if we do not believe a certain action is right, it would be a sinful choice to go ahead with it. If we choose to do something that we are not sure is right, we remove ourselves from the realm of faith and obstruct our relationship with Christ. Here's some variations of conscience or different consciences referred to in the Bible. Okay? We could lean in one or more of these. We could have these uh, expressed in different areas of our lives potentially. Okay? So we want to consider all of them in relation to our own lives. The first one is a seared conscience. We talked about this. The word seared, biblically, is actually a medical term that refers to cauterization. That is the nerves, okay, that would sense or feel something when we sin. When we sin repeatedly, those nerves, okay, the sensitivity we would have to those things are cauterized and left or rendered feeling less, okay? A very dangerous situation. Such a conscience has been silenced, in other words, through repeated sin, bad theology, or excuses. Number two is an untrained conscience. Okay, our consciences need to be continually trained to understand the whole counsel of God because we are culpable of sins of ignorance. 
okay, and for the art ignorance itself. I think I wrote this down earlier. Leviticus 5.17, if you guys want to go look there, uh, that is a clear statement biblically that a person is still guilty even if they are unaware that they have committed sin. So we want to train our consciences biblically. Number three is an overactive conscience. Okay, sometimes we believe that a desire, thought, or action is morally wrong when the Bible does not actually condemn it. In those cases, we are required to act according to our conscience, but should also seek to retrain our conscience according to biblical standards. So our conscience should, again, not be our guide, as the old saying goes, but be our guard. Okay, I had a counselee that believed participating in any way, shape, or form with Halloween was sin. They thought coming to the uh, fall festival was sin. Uh, that was very interesting. And so we needed to talk through and work through that because the Bible does not call going to a, a fall festival sin. All right, we wanted to work through those things in particular. But I told him not to come until he <laughs> worked that out, ultimately, of course. The last one is a biblical conscience. Okay, that is one that's informed by the Word of God so that when we feel this is wrong or it's right, that we are accurate, okay, according to the Bible, okay, and what we believe. Lastly, the solution to guilt. The only true answer to guilt is forgiveness through repentance. God must remove the guilt of our sin, much like he did to Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress. If you remember, the weight rolled off his back, and that's done through the appointed means of repentance, okay, and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And this certainly, as we need in terms of a solution to guilt, is certainly true before salvation, when we come to God initially, and after continually, as we seek to continue to grow and change as well, too. Thanks for staying a little longer. Let me pray real quick. Father, we're thankful for our time. We ask, Lord, your blessing and encouragement as we continue to seek to apply these truths to our hearts, Lord, in lives and counseling ministry as well, too. Lord, I pray that these truths would be clear, Lord, how they uh, are very practical and should be applied to our thinking and practice daily. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name.